Hey everybody, David here. Before we actually got into today's podcast episode, I just wanted to clarify something. Multiple times throughout this episode, I mentioned that we're covering Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 through 27. That's just me being dumb. We're covering Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 through 29. We're going all the way to the end of chapter 7 today. I just misspoke multiple times and I just wanted to clarify that before you actually just, I don't know, noticed it and were confused. That being said, let's get to the actual episode. Welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm David Tate, and this is part 24 in our series, Walking Through the Gospel of Matthew. And if you can believe it, today we're going to finish the Sermon on the Mount. And whenever I say that we're going to finish the Sermon on the Mount, I don't want you to think that we're going to be entirely done with it, because we're actually going to talk about it again next week in retrospect. And then also, we're going to be carrying basically all the themes that were laid down in this sermon with us into the weeks and months to come as we go through the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. And so we're going to still feel the impact of the Sermon on the Mount in the weeks and months to come. But today, what we're going to do is we are going to walk through Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 27, and we're going to see how Jesus wraps up this fantastic sermon. That being said, let's just recap some context so that we can jump right into it. And really, what you need to think of whenever you think of this entire Sermon on the Mount is you need to remember that this whole sermon is particularly focused on righteousness. And whenever we're talking about righteousness in regards to this sermon, we're not talking about the imputed righteousness that we receive from Jesus uh, in the same way that you might hear righteousness talked about by the Apostle Paul and stuff like that whenever you're in the book of Romans or something like that. That's not the righteousness that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Rather, the righteousness that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount is the day-to-day righteousness that Jesus expects and in fact demands from his followers and from the participants in his kingdom right? That is the righteousness that Jesus is talking about. That being said, all because this is the righteousness that he expects of us and all because this is an action-oriented righteousness, I don't want you to think that the righteousness that he's talking about is something that we ourselves receive credit for or that we ourselves are responsible for. Because ultimately, you have to realize that even this righteousness, even though we're not talking about the imputed salvific righteousness that Paul might talk about, even though we're not talking about that righteousness, even the righteousness that Jesus is talking about in this sermon is a righteousness that he makes absolutely clear comes from faith. Because what Jesus has been communicating throughout this entire Sermon on the Mount is that this righteousness is a righteousness that flows from a deep and abiding relationship both with the King, Jesus, and with the Father who is in heaven, right? The Father who sees in secret. That has been a huge theme throughout this entire Sermon on the Mount. And so all because we're talking about a very action-oriented righteousness that Jesus demands of his followers, I don't want you to think that this is a righteousness that comes from anything other than faith. This righteousness, like the imputed righteousness that we receive from Jesus, is a righteousness that stems from faith. Specifically, faith in the fact that God will himself provide for all of our needs, and faith in the fact that God's kingdom will, in due time, actually arrive. Our faith in these things is the thing that actually motivates us to live righteously, but the righteousness that we're engaging in here is not a righteousness that saves us, right? It is faith that saves us, but the faith that saves us is a faith that produces this sort of righteousness. To this, people might ask a question, whoa, 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 hold up. If this righteousness and if this activity does not save us, then why do I need to be righteous in any way whatsoever? Why do I need to actually do the things that Jesus is demanding here? And I think if you were to talk to Jesus about this, I think that he would probably give three responses, right? 
Firstly, um, the reason why you live righteously is because God deserves your obedience, right? God is worthy of our obedience, and therefore, because he is who he is, we should live according to how he has designed us to live, and we should engage in this righteousness. Secondly, we have to realize that whenever we decide to follow Jesus, we are actively deciding to participate in a new kingdom. We are abandoning the kingdom of the world, and we are stepping into the kingdom of God. And this is not a democracy, right? It is not a place where you can just choose whatever you want to do. No, there is a king on the throne, and therefore we walk in obedience and we walk in righteousness because he is the head honcho. He is the one in charge. And therefore we walk in obedience because our king has told us to do these things. But one thing that Jesus is really going to highlight in these verses that we're going to talk about today is that one reason why we engage in this righteousness is because the success of the Jesus movement altogether hinges on his followers' example and how well they replicate his actions. There's a lot of Christians who will go around and they'll be saying, you know what? Don't focus on the Christian, just focus on the Christ, right? People are going to fail, but really what you need to do is look at Jesus. And that is theologically true. Practically speaking, though, we have to realize that our testimony is going to be the greatest reason why people actually come to the faith, right? And so one of the reasons why we engage in this redemptive righteousness that Jesus is demanding in this sermon is because the success of his movement and the success of our obedience to him and the success of our own ministry hinges on whether or not we are actually walking in his footsteps and following in his practices, right? So there's three reasons why we should engage in this righteousness. And now we can begin to look at this sermon and how Jesus is going to finish it up. Uh, basically, the whole the way this whole sermon was structured is that Jesus began in the opening verses of the sermon by laying out the Beatitudes, right? Blessings that were going to fall upon the people who walked in accordance with his teachings. And then for the main like meat of the sermon, right? If you're wanting to view this whole thing like a sandwich, the bread on both sides is the Beatitudes on one end and the stuff we're going to cover today on the other end. And the meat of the sermon was Jesus going through the law and the prophets and giving his definitive interpretation of these things, right? How he views it, what he thinks we should do, and how he thinks that we can fulfill the heart of God by walking in obedience to his commandments, right? That's what we've been talking about for the majority of this whole thing, right? The majority of the Sermon on the Mount has been addressing that very thing, how Jesus interprets the law and the prophets. But then right here in verses 13 through 27, what Jesus is going to do is he is going to conclude this entire sermon. And in this, he's actually going to start getting a little bit more serious, right? In last week's thing, we saw how Jesus was cracking jokes left and right and how he was really making his points. But today he's going to get a little bit more serious and there's not really going to be any jokes here. Instead, what Jesus is going to do is he is going to give a series of warnings to the people right? Just how the whole sermon began with a series of blessings on people who are part of the kingdom. This last part of the section is going to be a series of warnings and curses to fall upon people who ultimately become enemies of that kingdom, right? And so Jesus is going to get very serious. And what you have to do before we even enter into these verses is you have to remember who the original audience is, right? The original audience is not 21st century Christians who are examining this from a Western perspective. The original audience of the Gospel of Matthew and the original audience that Jesus is speaking to are Jewish people, right? He is speaking to his Jewish disciples who are gathered around him on this mountain. And therefore, the words we read, you have to read it from their perspective first before we figure out how to apply it to ourselves. And ultimately, what Jesus is going to do in these verses is something very, very bold. He is basically going to warn the Jewish people and he is going to warn Israel that if they don't get with his program, 
they are doomed for destruction. That is a huge, huge claim. But here is Jesus, the King of the Jews, talking to the Jewish people. And he says, if you don't get with me, you're against me. And if you're against me, you're going to die and you're going to be destroyed. And you're going to have no part in this kingdom. Right? And that ultimately is the main point he's driving home in these final verses. And it should convict you. Right? Because even if you're not a Jewish person, you have to realize that the Jewish people had easier access to the kingdom than the Gentiles did, right? And so if the Jewish people had to be careful, then we as Gentiles have to be even more careful when it comes to actually applying the things that Jesus is saying here. And so this is what we read, starting in verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow, and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus begins his warnings and he begins his conclusion first by painting the picture of two paths, right? You've seen plenty of illustrations like this, right? You've got a fork in the road and there's a path to be chosen, right? There's one path and it's this wide path and a lot of people are going to choose it. But whenever they head down that path, it's going to lead to destruction. Then on the other hand, there's this tiny little path, very narrow. Probably only one person can walk in at a time and they can't walk side by side. They got to walk in front of the other. And this path... If you follow it, it leads to life. I think the implications of what Jesus is saying here should kind of terrify you. We quote these verses all the time, but if you actually just reflect on what he is asserting, this is a very big claim, right? What Jesus is pointing out here is that one doesn't simply stumble upon the narrow path. It must be sought. It has to be searched out. One doesn't simply drift into holiness. One doesn't simply stumble into the will of God. One doesn't simply walk their way into the kingdom of heaven casually without searching it out. It has to be something that flows from the heart where somebody makes a personal choice and a personal conviction to choose to follow Jesus, right? They have to choose to seek it out. Notice what he says. Enter through the narrow gate. This gate is narrow, right? It's not a wide gate. It's narrow right? It's something that you have to look for. It's something that very few people will actually be able to squeeze through. But that's the one we have to narrow, go through. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. What he's pointing out is that there is a way that most people on this earth are going to head, right? There is a way that seems natural to man. There's a way that seems right to man, but that way leads to death. That's what Jesus is saying here, right? There is a wide gate, Right? And it's going to seem very inviting because it's just such a nice, ornate, huge gate. And there's a nice, ornate, huge path that leads to it. Right, It's a path paved with gold bricks, and it's a gate that's paved with all these amazing jewels. People are going to want to follow that path. This is the natural way that man's heart will lead him. He wants to head towards the wide gate. He wants to follow down the wide path. And many are going to enter through it, but that way leads to destruction. Jesus' followers are not allowed to go down that path, right? They're not allowed to take the easy way. They're not allowed to follow in the footsteps of their culture. They're not allowed to follow in the footsteps of everybody around them. They're not allowed to follow in the footsteps of their own heart. Instead, the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life and there are few who find it. Whenever Jesus is talking about how to find his kingdom, he's not acting like there's this yellow brick road that you follow that leads you to the emerald city of oz instead it's like you are forging your way through a jungle right and there's this tiny little path that's kind of grown over and you've got to keep your eye closely locked on it because if you stray off it you're going to end up on that wide path 
but you've got to look closely and you've got to intentionally put in the effort to seek it out. And if you seek it out, it will eventually, eventually lead you to that narrow gate and that narrow gate will lead you to life. The issue is most people won't take that path. And once again, remember the audience that Jesus is talking to. He's not talking about Gentiles following this wide path right here. He's talking to Jewish people, right? Jewish people, the ones who had received the oracles of God, the ones who had received the entire Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the people who had heard from God, the people who viewed themselves as the chosen people of God. He's turning to Jewish people. And he says, the gate is wide, the way is broad that leads to destruction. He's talking to them and says, guys, if you're not careful, and if you keep heading down the path you're currently heading and the way that the Jewish people are currently heading at this time period, he says, you're going to head down the path to destruction. But if you follow me, and if you follow my way, that will lead to life. And ultimately, the imagery that Jesus is calling upon here in these two verses, it traces way back to Genesis chapter 18, whenever God explains why he appointed Abraham to be this chosen person. Right? He says that he specifically appointed Abraham to be the keeper of the way of Yahweh, right? preserving righteousness and preserving justice. Right, This was what the Jewish people's calling was to do. Right, They were supposed to be guardians of the way, guardians of the path that leads to God. And every generation of Jews bore this responsibility, but so many generations of Jews strayed from that responsibility. And that's why when you read the Old Testament, you read about the period of the judges. This is why when you read the Old Testament, you get to the period of the prophets, whenever the people are having to get onto them and tell them that God's going to send them into exile if they don't repent. Jesus right here is functioning like a prophet. And he's telling them, guys, there's going to be a greater exile for you. And Babylon is going to seem like a joke to you if you don't repent. Because right now you're headed down this wide path that leads to destruction. And most of the Jewish people are going to take it. But there is a select few, a remnant, who will be faithful. And they will follow the narrow path. And that narrow path will lead them to life. And what Jesus is communicating is that his teachings are that narrow path. And so he goes on to say, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. A lot of times people will quote these verses in regards to figuring out who is legitimately Christian, who is legitimately not Christian. And there is an argument to be made about that. But ultimately, Jesus isn't talking simply about who's Christian and who's not Christian. He's talking about who's worth listening to and who's not worth listening to. There are true prophets and there's false prophets. And what Jesus is saying here is the same thing he's going to be saying throughout this entire conclusion. If what the people is saying is contrary to Jesus' own teachings, they are false prophets. Right? This is very similar to stuff that you read about in the book of Deuteronomy. Whenever Moses gives these people um, in Deuteronomy chapter 13 and 18, basically what I like to call the consistency test and the prophetic test. Right, There are certain tests that Moses gives the people to tell them, hey, this is how you discern between a true prophet and a false prophet. Right, And Moses gives them certain outlines. Jesus is doing the same thing right here. And he says, hey, my teachings are the definitive teachings that preserve the way of Yahweh. Right? These are the words that preserve and guard the path that leads back to God. And if there, if you listen to anybody who contradicts what I'm saying, those people are a false prophet. 
And he warns them that these false prophets are going to come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. There are going to be these false teachers who show up and they are going to present themselves like legitimate followers of God who genuinely care for the people that they're talking to. And keep in mind, once again, the original audience Jesus is talking to are Jewish people, right? He's not simply talking about atheists who try to lead you away from the faith. No, he's talking about people who fear the God of Israel, right? He's talking about the Pharisees. He's talking about the Sadducees. He's talking about the people who engage in this performative righteousness and say that that's enough, right? He's saying those people, because they're not engaging with his teachings and because they're not submitting to his teachings, they are false prophets. They show up in, in sheep's clothing, right? They look gentle. They look God-fearing. They look like they are really good, genuine followers of God. But Jesus says that inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. Jesus is doing what only God can do right here, right? Man looks to the outward appearance. God looks to the heart. Jesus is talking about their outward appearance, but then he gives an interpretation of their heart, right? He's doing what only God can do. Right? He says, these guys, they're going to look good outwardly, just like David's brothers looked good outwardly. But inwardly, they're going to be sinful and wicked, just like David's brothers were. Meanwhile, you have David, who's just this young dude, young shepherd boy, not very impressive to look at, but he had a heart of gold. Right? That's who you listen to. You listen to the greater son of David, right? Jesus. He is the one true prophet. He is the person who you listen to and all these other false prophets, all these other teachers, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these guys, they might act like they have your best interest in heart and they might tell you genuine words of advice that come from their heart as they try to lead you towards God. But Jesus says that inwardly they are ravenous wolves who have false motives. And he's not even saying that these people understand their false motives. I want you to understand that, right? He's not saying that these people don't realize, like, he's not claiming that these false prophets realize that they're wolves. No, he's simply saying this is what they are, right? Whether they realize they're wolves or not, this is what they are. If anybody teaches something that is contrary to the teachings of Jesus, they are a false prophet. They'll act like they have your best interest in heart, but deep down they have ulterior motives, whether they recognize it or not. They'll speak in God's name, but if their teachings are contrary to Christ's, they have to be rejected. And if they aren't handled rightly, ultimately what they're going to do is they're going to destroy the sheep, right? They're ravenous wolves, right? They act like they have the sheep's best interest in heart, but really once the sheep get closer, they will eat them up. That's what Jesus is saying that these false teachers will do. And you can think about just some practical examples for the people at this time period, right? Jesus is out here saying, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, what was the one thing, the primary thing that the Jewish people at this time period were longing for? They were longing for vengeance upon the Romans, the people who were persecuting them, the people who they viewed as their enemies, right? And they used scripture to justify it, right? They justified their hatred of the Romans with the scriptures. Whenever you actually examine the scriptures, however, God's constantly telling them, whenever the enemies are oppressing you, the enemies are not your greatest enemy. You are your own greatest enemy because they would only be oppressing you if you weren't being faithful to me, right? That was God's whole message, right? And so the fact that the Romans were oppressing the Jewish people was a sign that the people were not being obedient to God's law in the way that they should have been. They were not being obedient by their heart. And so the Romans were not their greatest enemies. The Jewish people were their own greatest enemies. And that's what Matthew's been arguing in this entire gospel. He's been pointing out that in many ways, Israel has become the new Egypt, right? They have enslaved themselves. But during their bondage in Egypt, they hated the Egyptians, right? Now what that they are kind of in bondage to the Romans, they hate the Romans. They want the Romans to be wiped out. And Jesus' whole point is no. 
Your greatest enemy is not the Romans. You don't need the, the Romans to be wiped out. Your greatest enemy is yourself, right? And so you need to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you because these Romans, they are simply doing what God has allowed them to do, right? They are simply being vessels of God engaging in this divine act of judgment. And ultimately what you have to realize is that this story is going to eventually lead to their destruction because the people of Israel follow the wide path and because they enter through the wide gate. In AD 70, the Romans are going to come in and they're going to destroy Jerusalem just like the Babylonians did back in the Old Testament. It is just a copy and paste repeat story, right? That is the heartbreaking message behind all of this. And so if you just take that one example, loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, you can see how the scribes and the Pharisees of this time period were falsely representing God, right? They were acting like they were caring for the Jewish people by encouraging them to hate the Romans and despise them. But ultimately... They were eating the people up and they were destroying them because they were taking away their faith in God and placing their faith in simply military conquest, right? And so Jesus says, the way that you'll know these people, the way you'll know genuine prophets of God is by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit, right? So if this person goes around and they are teaching something that does not line up, with Jesus' teaching, they are acting like they're a good tree, but they're producing bad fruit, right? On the other hand, if the person is teaching something that lines up with Jesus' teachings, well, then they are a good tree that bears good fruit, and you should trust them, right? A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. No wonder, at the end of this gospel, whenever Jesus is confronting the Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, specifically the Pharisees, He's going to tell them that their whole thing, they're going around and they are making people twice a child of hell as themselves, right? Because that's what they're doing. They're going around like wolves in sheep's clothing who are eating up the flock God, right? They're taking these people who otherwise would be faithful members of God's household and they're eating them up and making them twice a child of hell, right? And therefore, Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, y'all are going to end up in the fire, right? You're going to be cut down because you are a bad tree bearing bad fruit, and then if you go to the very next chapter, Matthew chapter 24, what does he prophesy? The destruction of the temple of Jerusalem. It all goes to that, right? Like this, this all ties together. Everything in the gospel of Matthew, it's all tying to this. So then you will know them by their fruits. Jesus is teaching his disciples. Keep in mind, that's his primary audience, right? He's talking to the 12 disciples, um, even though we haven't heard about all 12 of them so far. Um, but he's talking about the ones that like were at least following him at this time period. And there's a greater crowd around him on this mountain. Jesus talks to them and says, hey, this is what you need to do. You'll know them by their fruits. If their teachings line up with mine, you can trust them. If their teachings don't line up with mine, then you can't trust them because those people are going to end up in the fire. They're going to end up being destroyed. I don't want you to miss how bold Jesus' claim is here. He is saying that if somebody does not line up with his teachings, this person will end up in the fire, right? Right here, he is declaring that he himself is functioning in the role of Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. He is the keeper of the way of Yahweh. He is the guardian of the path of Yahweh. He is the one in charge of who is going to receive the blessing and who is going to receive the cursing. He is in charge of who is going to enter into the kingdom of God and he is the one in charge of who is not going to enter the kingdom of God. It all revolves around his teachings. That is a huge, bold claim. And the reason I'm emphasizing this is because whenever we get to the end of the sermon, everybody else is going to realize this as well. Right. And a lot of the times in our modern lens, we usually kind of just read through it and overlook it because we're, like the words have become um, like we've become deafened to their actual meaning because we're just so used to hearing them. 
Uh, but the original audience, they are not missing the implications of the authority that Jesus is claiming to have here. And so we move on. Here we arrive at what I would sometimes consider to be the most terrifying words in the entire Bible. Uh, and, and I don't say that lightly. I, I genuinely think that these might be some of the most scary words in the entire scriptures. This is what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name, did we not prophesy? And in your name, cast out demons. And in your name, do many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is scary, right? This is very, very scary to me if you reflect on the implications of this. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So apparently lip service is not enough, right? It's not enough to simply pray a magic prayer at the end of a Sunday morning service. And it's not enough to simply stand up and say that you prayed that prayer, right? Lip service will not cut it, Jesus says. And in fact, he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name, do we not prophesy? And in your name, cast out demons. And in your name, do many miracles. He says that also is not enough, right? Performative righteousness is not enough, right? So say, maybe this person doesn't simply have the lip service. Maybe this person also has done outward acts of righteousness that would seem to line up with what Jesus has been saying. I mean, he was just talking about good trees bearing good fruit. This person, they've got the lip service. They've got the actions. And in fact, notice that these are not simply natural actions. These people are performing miracles. They're saying that they prophesied. They're saying that they cast out demons. They're saying that they did many miracles. These people didn't simply engage in righteousness. They engaged in supernatural activity. They have the resume to back up what they're claiming. And Jesus says, that's not enough. He's probably speaking hypothetically here, but we know at least one example of somebody who's exactly like this, right? Judas Iscariot. Um, this is one big thing that, that Matthew's going to highlight later on. Judas was motivated by his greed, right? He called Jesus Lord. He performed miracles, but in the end, it's going to be better for him to have never been born, right? That's the sad reality of Judas Iscariot. And so there is an example of this actually happening, right? Somebody who gave Jesus lip service, they performed outward acts of righteousness, and they even engaged in supernatural, miraculous activity. But Jesus says, none of that stuff matters. None of those things matter. Because you can do all those things. You can give him lip service, and you can engage in performative righteousness, and you can even perform miraculous acts of supernatural activity. Yet, even if you have all those three things, Jesus says that if you don't have this one essential ingredient, I will declare to them, I never knew you. It's all about a relationship right? The relationship is what they were lacking. And then he actually quotes from Psalm chapter six, when he says, depart from me, you practice lawlessness. If you go to Psalm chapter six, this is what the psalmist is crying out. And once again, this is from the perspective of the anointed one, right? The psalmist crying out to God, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity for Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my supplication. Yahweh receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back and they will suddenly be ashamed. The psalmist is not simply talking about people who need to go back and try again. He's talking about his enemies, right? Jesus says that there is a way to go through life. And once again, he's talking to Jewish people who knew more about righteousness than probably any Gentile even to this day. <laughs> These people, 
They studied the law. They had most of the law memorized, right? They followed the scribes and the Pharisees. They went to Jerusalem on a multiple time year basis to offer their sacrifices and engage in these activities. They did all these things. They thought they were righteous. And Jesus turns to these people and he tells them that there is a way wherein they could live their lives and they could call Jesus Lord, Lord, and they could do all these acts of righteousness and they could even perform miracles in his name. Yet in the end, they will prove to be his enemies. And once again, in this gospel, we will have a perfect example of that in Judas Iscariot, right? He followed Jesus. He called him Lord, Lord. He went around proclaiming his name. He performed miracles in his name. He baptized people. But in the end, he will prove himself to be an enemy of Jesus. And not only an enemy, but the greatest enemy, his betrayer. That is the heartbreaking reality of this. And that's why I find these verses so terrifying because I am so scared that there's a lot of Christians who are going about their life in this exact manner, right? They go to church every Sunday. They sing the songs at the top of their lungs. And man, they feel something deep inside when they sing these songs. But their entire life, they're looking back at this one moment when they prayed a prayer and they gave their life to Jesus, so-called. And they're trusting that it's they're going to church and it's they're giving money to the poor and it's they're doing this and doing that that is saving them. And Jesus says it's not about any of that stuff. It's about this relationship that you have to have with me. And in fact, you can go to church every Sunday and you can read your Bible every day and you can pray every night and you can cry out to God and do all these different things. And you can still end up at the end as an enemy of God if you're lacking the relationship and if you are not walking in obedience to his father's will. That is terrifying and scary to me, right? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but here's the secret ingredient. He who does the will of my father will enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to ask yourself, what is the will of his father? Well, um, sometimes people will go to the gospel of John and they'll say, you know, there's a certain place where he says, and this is my father's will. I don't want to do that because I don't think the gospel of John was written at this time period. Um, I think that we have to realize that Jesus is talking to an audience who would have been able to understand what he's talking about here. And therefore, the Father's will has to be determined from what he's talked about so far. And whenever you actually read the Sermon on the Mount, he makes it very clear what his Father's will is. His Father's will is that we do two things. First off, we engage in this restorative, redemptive righteousness that Jesus has been talking about this entire sermon, right? Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What is the reward? Entering into the kingdom of heaven. That is the reward, right? That is how you do the will of the Father, right? You don't do the will of the Father by praying boldly on the street corners and by giving all your money to the poor because you're trying to blow the trumpets in the streets, right? The way that you do the will of the Father is by praying in secret, right? And giving sacrificially and by loving your enemies and trying to avoid lust. That is how you do the will of the Father. But the reason you're doing that is not because you're trying to earn something from him, but it's because you love him and because you trust in him, right? It's a righteousness that stems from faith, right? A lot of the times we view faith and works as two separate things. And Jesus is pointing out that faith and works can't be two separate things because faith is trust in God. And whenever you place your trust in God, it results in you living differently, right? Because I trust that the Lord will provide for me, I don't have to go out and perform for the eyes of man. Whenever I trust that the Lord will provide for me, I don't have to go out and be anxious about how I'm going to get food for the next day. Whenever I trust that the Lord will bring his kingdom about, I don't have to lay up treasures here on earth, right? And therefore, faith leads to righteousness, 
right? And so you do the will of the Father by placing your faith in his kingdom and in his son and in his righteousness. And therefore you engage in that righteousness. He's not saying you have to be perfect here, but once again, you'll know them by their fruit, right? If none of that fruit is like is evident in your life, if you aren't engaging in any of the things that Jesus is talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount, then you've got to look at yourself and you've got to ask, am I one of those false prophets? Am I only doing things to check off boxes to try to impress God? Am I engaging in performative righteousness? Am I looking at this checklist of things that I've done in order to view myself as being a child of God? Or am I placing my trust in the Father and living in light of that trust? That's one thing that Jesus makes very evident is a way that you do the will of the Father. But then another way that Jesus talks about doing the will of the Father, and this is going to become especially clear whenever you read the next verses, it's by obeying his son and walking in accordance with his words, which is kind of saying the same exact thing, right? Jesus is giving commandments, right? It is the will of the father that his pe that people believe in the son, right? Okay, well, if you place your trust in the son, who is the king of all kings, who is the king over the kingdom of God, well, then you're going to walk in obedience to him, right? And so ultimately the will of the father is that you walk in obedience, but walking in obedience is not simply saying, Lord, Lord. Walking in obedience is not simply trying to go prophesy and perform miracles and cast out demons. Those things are good. You should call him Lord. You should perform these miraculous acts if he gives you the ability to do it. But you shouldn't simply do those in order to try to prove your own righteousness. You do those things because of the relationship that you have with God. Many will say to me on that day, this is scary because he's prophesying here, right? He doesn't say, hypothetically, this is going to happen. He says, many will say to me, he is looking into the future. Jesus, from this moment in the first century AD, he is anticipating judgment day. And he knows exactly how it's going to go down. He says that on that day, many will say to him, Lord, Lord, in your name, we did all these things. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is not a hypothetical reality. Jesus says that for many people, this is going to be their fate. They are going to live their entire lives with this false assurance of salvation, right? They are going to think that they are right in the eyes of God simply because they've gone through the motions and simply because they have a good track record and pedigree when it comes to righteous activity. And Jesus says, that's not enough, right? These people are going to die fully believing that they're going to end up in the presence of God. But when they stand before him, they're going to say, Lord, Lord, we did all this. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. That is heartbreaking. That scares me. These verses are heavy on my heart, and I hope they're heavy on your heart, because they would have been heavy on the hearts of the people who were hearing this, because every single person in the audience right here, I can imagine they are sitting on the edge of their seat uh, in their first century styled pop-up chairs. They're sitting on the edge of their seat because they're realizing the implications of what Jesus is saying. Notice that he is putting himself in the position as the judge of the universe who decides who enters the kingdom of heaven and who does not. Only God himself belongs in that spot. Yet Jesus is saying that he's the one who decides who goes in and who goes out, right? He is the king of the kingdom. He is the one who will be there on that day deciding who goes in and who goes out. He doesn't say many will come to God and call him Lord, Lord. He says many will come to me. He doesn't say that God will declare to them, I never knew you. He says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Jesus is putting himself in the place of God and he is giving himself the utmost amounts of authority. And this is a scary, scary passage, which then leads us to the conclusion of the entire sermon. 
Therefore, there, there's a typo on this slide. I'm sorry. It says verses 24 through 29. Verses 29 are coming at the end. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the rivers came and the winds blew and fell against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. But notice how he doesn't end on the positive note. And everyone hearing these words of mine and not doing them may be compared to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the rivers came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and great was its fall. This is heartbreaking stuff. Uh, what Jesus does here is very similar to what Moses does in Deuteronomy chapter 28. He begins with the blessings that will fall on the people if they walk in obedience to the Lord's law. And then he ends with the curses and the judgments that will fall upon the people if they don't walk in obedience. Now, Jesus, the greater Moses, is upon the mountain, the greater Mount Sinai, and he delivers his greater law. And this law ultimately is gospel, right? The good news is that you don't have to be bound in your sin anymore, and you can live righteously because the king of righteousness has showed up. But unfortunately, that means that the curse that falls upon you if you reject it is even greater than the curse that fell upon the people of Israel if they disobeyed the law. You remember what ultimately the punishment was for the people of Israel whenever they disobeyed the law. The Babylonians came in and destroyed the temple and destroyed the city and took them into captivity. Jesus is using that same imagery right here, right? There is going to be a house that is going to fall. And right now, Early on in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus turns to the people of Israel and he says, I put a choice before you. Very similar to Joshua, right? Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Jesus is turning to the people and he says, there's two men with two houses with two destinations. One person is going to be on a sturdy house that's built on the rock. The other person is going to end up wiped out and destroyed. And Jesus turns to his audience, to his disciples, and he says, choose this day whom you will serve. Unfortunately, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, the people of Israel are going to choose the wrong path. The people are going to choose the wide path. They are going to choose the wide gate. They are going to follow the false prophets. And therefore, they are going to be the ones saying, Lord, Lord, let us enter in. And he's going to say, I don't know you. And therefore, whenever you get to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, shortly before his death and resurrection, Jesus is going to ascend another mountain, the Mount of Olives, and he's going to deliver another sermon, what we call the Olivet Discourse, and he is going to pronounce a series of judgments on the city of Jerusalem. And he is going to say that just like he prophesied right here, the house will fall, right? Just like the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple back in 586 BC, so too in AD 70, the Romans are going to come in, they're going to destroy the temple, and they're going to destroy Jerusalem. However, does that mean that God's going to abandon his people? No, 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 no. God has a plan for the people of Israel and he's going to preserve a remnant, right? Because there are going to be those people who choose to follow the narrow gate. And those people who follow the narrow gate, they will enter into life. And that's what you read about back in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Go read Deuteronomy 32. Moses prophesied this entire thing. He says that the people of Israel will reject their rock. And when they reject their rock, what God's going to do is he's going to harden the hearts of the people of Israel. And he's going to take his kingdom to the Gentiles. But then in the last days, he will in due time bring his remnant back to him and they will dwell with him forever. That's all in Deuteronomy chapter 32. 
Israel will reject the rock. and Therefore, the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. And that's ultimately what Matthew is communicating here in his gospel, right? Right here, Jesus communicates that prophecy. And then at the end of Matthew, he's going to communicate it further. And he's going to say, all right, Israel's chosen. They have chosen the wide path. They have chosen the wide gate. Therefore, not a stone will be left here. And that's heartbreaking. That all being said, these verses do not simply apply to Israel, right? Because yes, Israel will choose the wrong path, and therefore the Romans will be the flood that sweeps in and destroys the house. But this is also true of the Christian church at large, right? Because this is true of everybody on the face of the planet. He doesn't simply say Israel here. He's talking to the people of Israel, so they're his immediate audience. But he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Right? Anybody who does this is a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. And the rain descended, and the rivers came, and the winds blew and fell against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? This is why the apostles, whenever they are suffering through all the things they're going through, whenever everybody's persecuting them and killing them, they're left rejoicing. And they're calling out to God, crying his praises, rejoicing to be counted worthy to suffer for the name. And that's why Paul can look at the end of his life as he's about to die. And he says that I have served God with a clear conscience. I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Paul can say all these things because he built his life upon the words of Christ. Right? And therefore, no matter what flood came his way, no matter what wind blew, the house did not fall. And the same can be true of the entire Christian church. If only we will build our lives upon what Jesus has said. And building your life upon what Jesus said is not simply by proclaiming doctrines. Right? It's not simply saying, I believe in the Trinity. I believe in the hypostatic union of Christ. I believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. It's not simply doctrinal. When Jesus says, build who hears these words of mine and does them, this is Deuteronomy language, right? You hear, and from hearing you learn, and from learning you keep, and from keeping you do, right? Hearing leads to obedience, right? It's not simply about doctrine, it's about action, right? You have to hear what Jesus says here, and therefore you're not going to be satisfied to simply not commit adultery on your wife. You're going to seek to purge the lust from your heart. You're not going to simply be satisfied with dealing with your enemies. You're going to seek to love them. That is what the Christian church is being called to do. And if they can do that, they will be like the apostles who will rejoice no matter what they have to face because they have built their life upon the rock. On the other hand, everyone hearing these words of mine and not doing them may be compared to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. You might say you might have correct doctrine and everything. Right? You might believe in all the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, but if you are not walking in obedience to Christ, my friend, if you're not striving to walk in obedience to Christ, you're going to be that foolish person whose house is built upon the sand. Once again, don't mistake me for saying that salvation comes from works. I'm not. I'm saying that salvation comes from faith, but faith produces works because faith is trust in God and who he claims to be and what he claims to do. And you can't place your faith in something without it changing how you live. And therefore, please be cautious because you might cognitively assent to all the doctrines of Christianity, but if your life is not being transformed and if you do not find yourself imaging the things that Jesus is proclaiming in the sermon, he says, when the rain descends and the rivers come and the winds blow and slam against your house, 
it will fall and great will be its fall, right? Just like the temple in Jerusalem, which was so mighty and beautiful, and they spent so much time on it, just like it fell at the hand of the Romans in AD 70, so too there will be many people who believe that they have a right relationship with Christ and they will fall on that day because they had not walked in obedience to his commands and they had falsely assumed that they had a relationship with, a relationship with him when in reality, he never knew them. And so before we look at these final two verses, I want to read a quote from you, uh, a quote to you um, from Peter Lightheart. I've quoted him a whole bunch, but that's because he has some really good stuff to say. Uh, this is a really long quote, so just bear with me. Jesus is warning Israel specifically, but Jesus' words have rightly been taken more broadly. The temple can serve as a trope for our lives, our families, our churches, our businesses, our schools, and the same warnings apply. And these warnings apply specifically to the new Israel, the church. And Jesus warns us that it is not enough to parrot the Reformation creeds and slogans. A church can memorize the Westminster Catechism from now until Judgment Day, and that will not keep the church stable and strong. That will not hold her up in the day when the rain and the wind and rivers beat against it. She will stand only if she hears the words of Jesus and does them. And closer to home, it doesn't cut it for us to do great things in Jesus' name. When we are brought before the judge, it won't do any good to say, Lord, Lord, did we not establish schools in your name? Didn't we publish books in your name? Didn't we plant churches in your name? Didn't we reform the church in your name? That will not impress the judge. And if that's all we've got to say for ourselves, then Jesus will say what he said to the Jews who heard him but didn't do what he taught. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The thing that keeps a church standing, the thing that ensures that all our projects are really successful, the only thing that ensures this is hearing and doing the words of Jesus. The only thing that prevents us from being cut down and cast into the fire is to be a good tree that produces good fruit. It's not the one who says the Lord, Lord, who enters the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. End quote. So um, I think what Peter Lightheart has to say there is 100% true. Uh, we shouldn't take these words lightly, because as we're going to see in these final two verses, Jesus' original audience did not. Um, I'm going to be entirely honest. I don't know how I edited this entire PowerPoint because this is an even greater typo. On the last slide, I said Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29, and it was only verses 24 through 27. And now it says 21 through 29, it's only 28 and 29. I don't know what I was doing. I was probably half asleep when I made this. <laughs> but here are the final words that we read. Jesus finished his sermon, and this is how the people respond. And you could really preach an entire sermon on just these two verses. Now it happened that when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. This is probably one of the understatements of the year, and I've tried to make that clear to you. A lot of the times people misunderstand what Matthew is saying here. People read this and they think that what Jesus is saying is mind-blowing stuff. In reality, we've talked about this over previous weeks. Most of the stuff that Jesus says in this sermon, uh, especially in the main body of the sermon, really like half, like Matt, like the back half of Matthew chapter five through the first half of Matthew chapter seven, that stuff, most of it, it can be picked up on and inferred from the Old Testament, right? And really, I would say that the entire thing could be inferred from the Old Testament, right? And so what Jesus is saying here is not groundbreaking stuff. There were other teachers who had very similar teachings to what Jesus is saying here. The thing that astounds everybody is his authority, right? It's the way that he presents himself. Jesus is not simply presenting himself as a rabbi giving a teaching. He is presenting himself as a king giving the authoritative interpretation of the law. 
And he says, if you don't follow me, you're going to burn. And if you do follow me, you're going to have life. And if you don't follow me, you won't enter the kingdom. And if you do follow me, you will enter the kingdom. And I'm the one who decides. That's what Jesus is saying here. That is what astounds people. So it happened when Jesus finished these words, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, not because they were brand new teachings and not because it was the newest craze. The reason why they're astonished is because he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Did these people know all the stuff that we know thus far about Jesus? Did they know that he was born from the line of David? Did they know that he was born of a virgin in Bethlehem? Did they know that he'd escaped to Egypt and come back? Did they know that he was praised by wise men? Probably not. They simply sat down here from this random dude who looked kind of like a carpenter and they hear this sermon and their minds are blown because they're wondering who the heck is this guy? And they're astounded by his authority. And so quite fittingly, what we're going to see whenever we go into Matthew chapter 8 is we're going to see whether or not Jesus can actually back up that authority with his actions, right? And so we're going to see a series of miracles playing out. And we're going to see that, yes, Jesus has actions to back up his words, right? And so you can see how Matthew is making this case here, right? Matthew chapters 1 through 4 were all about authenticating Jesus, and then Matthew chapters 5 through 7 are all about the authority of Jesus as he's proclaiming his kingdom manifesto to the people. And then when you go to Matthew chapter 8 and onwards, Jesus is going to back up that authority by demonstrating his authority through miraculous actions. And so this is some amazing, amazing, crazy stuff. And I've already talked way too long today. So I'm going to wrap it up right there. Uh, we're not going to be entirely done with the Sermon on the Mount yet because I do want to come back next week and I actually want to basically do one big retrospective on the sermon and just reflect on certain things that uh, I want to kind of summarize what we've talked about so far and then also address some things that we didn't get to quite address along the way. Things that I hope you understand the Be sure to keep a smile on your face. Don't anybody steal your joy. Remember who you are in Maranatha.